Welcome to Immigrants Journeys. Imagine leaving your home country to settle in a foreign land. What would that feel like? How would you make the transition and how might that experience change you? The guests on this show share their perspectives and opinions related to their immigrant journeys. Listen to find out what challenges they overcame and how they made the transition. This episode is the first of a four-part miniseries. I had the privilege of interviewing an entire family with French roots. Their story starts in the U.S. and France, then spans the Atlantic and Caribbean oceans. In this conversation, a seemingly harmless perfume bottle and grandma's exotic tales of travel spark a burning desire in a young girl's heart that results in studying French at the Sorbonne in Paris, working as a nanny on the Caribbean island of Guadeloupe, and moving to French Guyana in South America with her French husband. Now, as a certified court interpreter and translator, Elisa reflects on past global adventures and plans for the future. During our conversation, she shares some French cultural perspectives from the lens of Paris, Brittany, Guadeloupe, and French Guyana. Although she wishes she had taken the foreign service exam, she accepts that her dream of living in a different country every few years would actually be her husband's nightmare. During our conversation, Elisa talked about how some popular English songs were actually um, borrowed from French songs. A great example of this is Cette année-là, performed by Claude Francois and written by Bob Gaudio and Judy Parker. Lissy translated, the title is That There a Year. I hope you enjoy it. To learn more about this show, visit www.immigrantsjourneys.fm. Now, let's listen to Elisa's Immigrant Journey. All right. Well, Elisa, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You grew up in the United States. Is that right? That's right. I was born in upstate New York. You somehow ended up in Paris. Tell me about that. Right. So it's kind of funny. I think it all started actually when my parents went away for a holiday in France, left me with an aunt, which was good times, but came back and presented me with this fabulous perfume bottle. Perfume's kind of a big word. It was more like colored water, I think, but <laughs> in a glass Eiffel Tower and told me that they had had a fantastic time. I think from that very young age of eight years old, I had always thereafter thought I really need to go see this Eiffel Tower for myself and figure out what they saw and enjoy it myself this time around. So from a very young age, I had had an obsession with going to France. It came out in the way of my country report was about France. I started making some foods that were kind of French-centric. Then obviously when I had a chance to learn a language at school, I learned French. So speed ahead to about 16 years old, I got to go to Nice, France, and stay with a host family. And sure enough, when I had that experience, I was like, oh, this is the place. This is, this is where I want to be because everything was just really familiar in a sense because there were just teens doing the same things they did in the States, but everything was so much more interesting. 
and colorful and confusing. And I kind of came back from those two short weeks abroad thinking, I have to get back there somehow. From that high school experience, I then went to university. And in university, I made French and French civilization my discipline and specialization. Therefore, it was very easy to then boomerang over to France because that became part of my degree. I did it a little differently than most people. I started with two semesters of undergrad, and then I kind of fast-tracked everything myself (laughs) and went abroad with a totally different university than I was actually studying at. There you go. That's where all the French comes in. But I also did a little bit differently because it was not only it wasn't my junior year, it was only the first semester of my sophomore, but I also stayed. Like I never went back to the university except for one semester to the U.S. to finish an independent study in French. So, yeah, that's kind of how the academic part of things played out. In my interview with Denis, your husband, he mentioned that you all met in Paris. Was that why you were in school or did you finish school and then end up working right. in France? Right. So this is the thing, because a lot of people that we know, especially now in this age in our life, they always think, and I don't know if this is based on like rom-coms or what, but they sort of always have this picture that I was vacationing, like kind of glassy-eyed staring at the Eiffel Tower. And then I fell upon this lovely Frenchman who then became my life partner. But it was really different, actually, because I was there studying. And then from studying in Paris, I went back one semester to finish. So I would have not only a French degree, I would also have an American BA. When I did that, I went back to Paris for about a year. Then I got a job working in the French West Indies. So I had about 18 months there. And then after that, I went back to the capital. And then that's when I was working and I met Denis. While I was in Paris and kind of trying to figure out whether I was going to go back to state New York and stay there beyond just doing this independent study and getting it done, I got an offer from a family to go take care of their kids in the French West Indies in Guadeloupe. Their grandmother lived in Paris and she had put out an ad and I saw it in a dormitory where I was living at the time. I kind of can't even believe I did this now when I think back on it. I actually went and met the grandma and said, hey, I think this would be great. Then I flew to Guadeloupe and met this family who had three kids. One was a complete baby and the other two were not much older. And I was her governess for a year and a half in this tropical island. And it was really different. It was really an experience, but it really gave me the opportunity to see France totally differently than I had been because I had been living in Paris. And for me, that was France, Paris and the surroundings and the few places I would train to with friends and stuff like that. But this was also France, but it was so different. It was such a different face of France. When you say the Fresh West Indies, that's a group of islands in the Caribbean. Correct. So you've got Martinique, Guadeloupe. There's also Saint-Lucie and Domingue and Dominica and a few others too. But right, so that's a, a French colony or what used to be called the Domtom, the Departments of the Territories. And it's an amazing place. If you get a chance to go, it's a volcanic island. 
that is still France, but tropical France, right? It's still got the French language in addition to the Creole and it's got the French influence. But, you know, you're floating around in the Caribbean. So it's very different than being in metropolitan France, such as Paris, but yet it is still France. What's the name of the actual island? The island I was in was Guadeloupe. And people also know Martinique. Those are the two most common of the French West Antilles. It's interesting you say that that way, because I think Denis referred to French Guyana also as France. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Do the French really see it as the same country? It's really funny because they kind of pick and choose. And what I mean by that is they don't see it as the same country, although when it comes down to voting, it's extremely important that they get the votes from their territories, right? Because that can help determine who gets elected, right? And it's also really important in some cases strategically. In the case of French Guiana, it's really strategic because they have the European spaceport there. So France holds on to that colony so that they are able to launch rockets, which are a huge economic engine, and to have that presence in space basically. So that's why French Guiana is such. Now, Martinique and Guadeloupe, it's really different. There was the rum culture based on sugar cane, and there was always the kind of paradise and tourism aspect. But they are also somewhat strategically located, too, in the Caribbean. So again, France holds on to that as a territory. However, They do things that are kind of funny, like the kids in school in the territories will learn about Napoleon and the Sun King and things that are so iconoclastically metropolitan France and metropolitan French history. And they'll learn about that before they'll learn about their own indigenous histories. So in that sense, France is very much still enforced. There will also be photos in various places such as very third world style diners and you'll have a a picture of Macron or you have a picture of the whoever is in government at that time and you'll have the French flag flying. So there's a lot of patriotism in that sense but there's also the feeling that many times they aren't part of France. For example, there's the obvious distinction of skin color. There's um, the obvious distinction of where they live is so different than France in Central Europe in terms of lifestyle and and, um, culture and habits and things like that. So it's this really mixed relationship. Tell me a little bit about Guadalupe. When you go back to your memories of what it was like going there now you're the governess of these three small children. What kind of struck you as being, I guess, culture shock? It was pretty fascinating for me, actually, because I was coming there from having been in Paris, where I had lots of freedom as a student and lots of different types of people and friends in my life and a lot of independence. What struck me first and foremost was the absolute classism that's apparent in the islands. You have what they call a beke culture, and that would be someone who's indigenous and native, but is white as opposed to black. It's the culture in Guadeloupe that was at one point the ruling culture, but they are actually white. So they're not the majority black, like like an island person that you think of. There were different times in history where they had the upper hand and the wealth So there's this power play in the islands between local culture and then people who were 
born there, but looked like they were from France. They were white. So there was a lot of conflict around that, but that culture still exists. Like you still have people who, who are born in Guadeloupe, but they don't look like what you would expect an islander to look like. They look more like someone from Paris, for example. So, so that was mm-hmm. a very interesting dynamic that I had never encountered before. Just the fact that there were these kind of invisible to me rights and norms between men and classes and cultures. And then on top of that, I had my own situation because I was now in the position of being a servant. I had been a student and I'd always had like silly jobs and stuff, but I had never been domestic in someone's home. So that was also a very big learning curve for me, like what you could and couldn't do and what was acceptable to say and not. So there was a whole learning curve within that, too. So there was a lot going on. After about 18 months in Guadeloupe, Elise's job as a nanny came to an end. She headed back to France and then... I come back from France. I meet several potential loves of my life because I'm teaching English to adults and I'm working for companies such as Renault, Societe Generale, L'Oreal, and, and different um, companies that have brilliantly in France, for profits have a certain percentage of money they can give to training employees. So that worked very well in my favor because everyone needed to learn English or wanted to learn English. So I was working teaching English as a second language to adult professionals. And what happened is, I had maintained a friendship with a woman who was Dutch Indonesian who happened to be Denise's roommate. <laughs> so in Paris, it's easier to have a small apartment as one person because not very many people can afford the larger apartments. So what, what had happened is this woman named Greta and her boyfriend had pulled a bunch of kind of a motley crew of different people together and they had rented an entire floor of a building. So Denis was one of the roommates. And it's kind of funny. I went over to see my friend and we were hanging out together and Denis comes in from a tennis lesson. The French love their Roland Garros and their tennis. And he's completely ignoring me, eating a yogurt, like scraping the very bottom of the yogurt, which is so smart because the yogurt in France is amazing. It's full cream. And I kind of looked at him and I thought, huh, he's kind of interesting. And so my friend said to me, oh, don't worry about him. He's just this country guy. I don't know. We found him. He was looking for a place to stay. So he's one of the new roommates. And I said, no, no, I really like him. He seems nice. I had dated my fair share of characters in Paris. So I think I instantly picked up on the fact that this was a person who was kind of comfortable in his skin and not arrogant and pretty self-possessed doing his own thing. So that was it. In my interview with Denis, he had mentioned that it was Elisa who had made the connection that Denis' job offered its employees opportunities to work in different places since the company had locations all over. So I asked Elisa about that. Well, the way it happened is, so I super loved Paris and I still do with my heart and soul, but he is from the west of France, from a region called Brittany, which is the Celtic region. And they have very strong roots there. They're very tied to their traditional cultures, very close family of five boys, culturally Catholic, still has all his childhood friends. And 
was from a town of 3,500 that was absolutely charming. It is still absolutely charming. It's like something out of the movie Chocolat. You've got your huge church and your bakery and you've got your market. And it's almost like you see little men with baguettes and their bikes. It's kind of, it's very quintessentially country French. And he had only moved to Paris because that's where the job was for him. Fixing elevators, the only time he had cared about the Eiffel Tower was when he had to go and actually fix the elevator in the Eiffel Tower. He had never gone there as a tourist or embraced Paris in any way for himself. So when we met, it became very apparent his dream was to go back to his hometown. But my dream was to continue to travel. So when Otis elevator offered him the opportunity to go to French Guiana, we thought, well, this is perfect. He gets out of the city. I get to see something new. We both travel and figure out what we're made of. So that's how it came about. He actually said to Otis, I'd like to leave Paris. And he actually thought that he might be transferred to a town near his hometown. And I said, no, ask, ask broader, see what, what they can do kind of globally for us. And that's when they came up with the idea of sending us to French Guiana. A young man from Brittany, a young woman from upstate New York meet in Paris, then head to French Guiana to start a new life together. What was that like? Completely wild. It was so incredibly different. The first thing is nobody knows where it is. So everyone assumes you're going to Africa because they think of Papua New Guinea. So the first thing was just the problems with getting like the shot and the documentation that we needed because it just isn't on anyone's radar. So it was first kind of figuring out where we were going, what we needed, and who we could actually ask to prepare for that. Otis had not sent anyone from Paris. They had had other employees they sent from the south of France and other places, but his particular branch had never done this. When we first got there, I'll never forget it. First of all, just even getting there was kind of crazy. But when we first got there, I got off the, the plane and you're hit with a 99% humidity, which is just like you're stepping off the plane into a terrarium. And thereafter, everything is different. You're, you're just the sounds, the sights, the colors. The whole architecture was just some cement buildings. There were a few tiny markets, but we were leaving a city of 8 million, starting a new life in this new place. <laughs> we were put up in a tiny apartment, which was ample for us, but it was, it was us and all mosquitoes. <laughs> and so the first while we spent trying to fight mosquitoes unsuccessfully. So thereafter, we lived in a hotel that had opossums and sloths and different things kind of roaming around the building and the reception area. We were directly across from Devil's Island. Some people know the movie Papillon. From, from our hotel, we could see where the French had had their penal colony after Indochina. So that was kind of wild, too, because it's just a slice of history. And the Dreyfus affair that, if you know about, that's the kind of wild and sordid. So yeah, everything was really, really different. Being in such a different setting from Paris, I could only imagine what the music must have been like. Absolutely fabulous because first of all, they have a really long running carnival season that goes on for weeks on end and it's just a total party. You dance all night and the women dress in costume that is madras from head to toe with gloves like no skin is showing. And the women actually choose their dance partners 
And the dance partners never know whom they're dancing with. So there's this whole coquettish dance culture around carnival that goes on for weeks. But then in terms of like music and pop cultures and parties, you've got French Guiana being one of the highest standards of living in South America. So you have people from Haiti, Brazil, Suriname, and then you've got indigenous Amerindian cultures that are there. So everyone's got their own vibe and tunes and they're all living in the same place. So you hear lots of different blaring music. It's great. I liked it. Aside from music, what were some of the other impressions that Elisa had? The two things that were the absolute most amazing about French Guiana was one, the sense of community. It was just unparalleled. And has always led me to think that I would enjoy going back to the developing world because the friendships are so profound as you need each other, you know, especially when you're a transplant community where no one else has family. So the sense of community is something that I've always missed and I've always thought was really unique there. And then the second thing was just the nature. I mean, it's like, honey, I shrunk the kids. The leaves of the palm trees are the size of my body and everything grows so prolifically and to that point, we would go on excursions in the forest, but I discovered very quickly that I was susceptible to tropical illness. So I couldn't do quite as much as I wanted, although I did get on the Amazon River a lot. Whereas Denis was able to go in the forest for 15 days at a time and take his machete and all that kind of Indiana Jones stuff. But I would stay more in town. But I just got lucky enough to catch every single weird tropical illness there was. So I had something called papionitis, which they had not seen for a better part of a decade. At one point, French Guiana had actually a curfew because this small moth was so lethal that they would turn their lights off at 10 o'clock at night so to discourage any of these moths from sticking around. Well, they hadn't seen a case of it. They had been treating actually with DEET and DDT, which is actually not even used here in the States. It's so powerful. It's so heavy pesticide. Well, I happened to get one of the only cases that they had seen in a decade of that. So that was that sucked. That was bad in a lot of ways. And then thereafter, I got dengue fever four times. The final time was a hemorrhaging dang, which nearly did me in. In Crayol, they call it the bone-breaking disease because you really do feel like your bones are just breaking. It just super sucks. It really sucks. But then the final kicker was mm. when I finally left French Guiana, I came back to <laughs> clean, hygienic, everything you could want at your fingertips home in New York. I brought with me a worm that traveled around my neck. Yeah, kind of making its pathway. And I had a really hard time finding anyone in upstate New York that knew tropical conditions and was able to treat it. So it took a little while. There are all kinds of methods from trying to suffocate it to trying to do some chemical burns to finally a dermatologist who actually did like a skin scraping and was able to eliminate it. But that was not my favorite souvenir. At one point, I just ended up naming it because I started to think like no one's ever really going to be able to get this out of my system. So I just might as well befriend it because it was really creepy. I could see it moving in my neck like, and I just couldn't figure out how we were going to get rid of this. So, but yeah. <laughs> what was travel like within French Guiana? 
During our time in French Guiana, we did some really unique travel whereby we took like dugout canoes to very remote pockets of of the country and where they would have like villages of students that lived in super primitive conditions. But it was still France, like they were still learning from French textbooks and still flying the French flag. But they would have names like Nike and Jordan because they would have these influences from other places, the sports world, the French media and stuff like that. And they would just kind of grab onto that stuff without having to have any context. It was really fascinating. And we were blessed to know some teachers that were working in those really rural pockets of the jungle. And it was pretty neat. Talk to me a little bit about identity when you went <clears throat> to Guadeloupe and then also to French Guyana and even Paris. You take some of you with you to wherever you go. And in my experience, at least, I feel like part of a place wherever I've lived, I bring it then with me. It becomes part of me. So talk to me a little bit about how that process may relate to you. Like, what was it like being an American in Paris? What was it like being somewhat French-influenced in Guadeloupe and then French Guyana? And then what was it like coming back to the U.S. with having all of these different ingredients, if you will? Well, I think the funniest um, thing about identity is, and I totally agree with you, that you take with you your roots and what you've known. I think the first and foremost thing is I always wanted to be an ambassador and not an ambassador. But I mean, there were definitely situations where I really felt like I stood out like a sore thumb when I didn't wish to. In every situation, because of, I think, the breadth and the past imperialism of America, in every situation, my nationality was always slapped on me, whether I wanted it to be or not. In other words, I always had that label of the American. And it was just really interesting to me to try to unpack what it was that I was supposed to be when someone referred to me that way, because it always brought with them what they thought about the states. So I would say something and, oh, that's so American. Or, oh, well, she's an American, so she's going to want... And so it was really an opportunity for me to kind of step back and look at my past and think, well, what are the things that are making me the American that I am? And what are the things that are what other people have seen on television or have stereotypes that they've thought I should fit into? So in each situation, I felt like the outsider. I think in Paris, I think most everybody feels like an outsider because it's such a big cosmopolitan city. So you find your subculture. And I don't think that anyone feels like they fit in all the time there. I mean, I even think sometimes that Parisians have chips on their shoulders about, about their own identity within Paris because things are changing so much and there's so much wonderful migration in every direction and such. But in the other two places that I lived, it was much more distinct. And I can give you the example of in French Guiana, besides one other person, I was the only American in the whole country. They had seen some missionaries, some Jehovah Witness and some Mormons who had actually gone to the southern part of the country, which is actually protected territory, which usually you can't go unless you're National Geographic studying the canopy or you're sting and you've got some special money and connections. But that was like the only recollection that people had of having 
an American living amongst them. So it became a really big stigma. I was the American and people didn't even bother to learn my first name in a lot of cases. So I found that really strange and annoying. It was really interesting to hear Lisa say this, especially since during my interview with her husband, Denis, he joked that now living in Western Pennsylvania, folks refer to him as Frenchie. Then I just came to embrace it and was like, okay, yeah, so I am. So I guess I'll just make the most of it. So I got a job in public relations working with American companies from Boeing and Hughes and such that came to launch rockets there. And it really worked to my favor to be the American there. So in that case, I had to kind of learn about myself, what it was like to kind of take ownership and sort of wear your nationality outright and center. Although I don't think of myself as a particularly ethnocentric or patriotic person. In Guadalupe, it was a little bit different because being American for them equaled wealth. So that was very funny because I was actually the help. It was very strange to have someone who wasn't from the islands that was actually doing childcare and housework and things like that because most everybody had someone who was Guadalupean doing that. So I became sort of this exotic animal because I could not only kind of take care of the kids and do the housework, but I could teach English. So I was sort of this, like, all of a sudden I became this sort of prize asset. But again, it was very weird because I didn't have the freedom to kind of decide which families I could help and which I didn't. That was all my employer kind of telling me, these are our friends. You're going to want to teach their kids and you're going to take these kids to their tennis lessons. And yeah, so in each case, being American has represented really different things. And then coming back to the States, it was yet another level because I left when I had graduated high school. And then I came back with a kid and aspirations of a career. The first time I tried to do anything here, like get a bank account, I was deemed sort of this fascinating dinosaur because I had no credit report and, <laughs> and I didn't know what I was doing. And so I had to come back here. And even though I now so-called sit in and I was so-called home in my own nationality, I didn't know how to do so many things that people my age did. So I felt like I was a foreigner kind of getting reverse culture shock, basically. I want to go back a little bit to the language aspect and accents. Since in Guadeloupe and French Guyana, they had some kind of a French Creole. Were you treated differently because you had more of a Parisian French motherland kind of accent? Yes, I think so. I think so, definitely. Much in the way when Americans will hear a British accent, we tend to assume that the person is educated or well-read. It's kind of that same benefit of the doubt, kind of assuming that you've had privilege or you've had opportunities. So yeah, I think that that definitely is the case. Yes. Elisa studied French at the Sorbonne in Paris. So I was curious about her accent when she spoke French. If you ask someone who's not French, they'll tell you it is. And then if you ask someone French, they'll be like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. We knew she was American. <laughs> so it really depends on who you ask. Denis, being a native French speaker, should be able to tell. Or can he? 
he doesn't what does hear your husband it say? anymore in the same way that I don't hear his accent in English anymore. We've been together nearly 30 years. So it's always really funny to me here in southwestern Pennsylvania where we live when he will stumble upon someone who asks him to repeat a word several times. And I'll just kind of look at that person with my eyes kind of glaze over because I'm like, how can they not hear what he's saying? Because your ear gets so accustomed to the people around you and, and the sound around you that it's really hard to hear it as obtuse or different. It just becomes very familiar. So lots of times he will say things that I don't even notice. Like he'll say elevator to someone and it just say elevator. And I won't even notice that that's going to be hard for someone to understand because it's just like that's how he's always said it. I'm curious to see if this happens to you too because you've been around French for so long with me and different languages and stuff. Sometimes my kids will say something and I'm like, what? And it's not that because they're mispronouncing it, but like my ear is so trained now that like they said something. I'm like, you don't realize that you just said something that sounds like seven wow. different things in about four different it's languages. So Does that happen to you too when someone says something to you clear as day in English, but you're like, did they say baguette like to eat or absolutely, did they say baguette absolutely. as in like false totally does. And then sometimes it's also it's just like that there's a better word in a language. And so sometimes you just like you just want to you want to insert the word that makes the most sense, even if it's not in the language that you're currently speaking at that time, because the more languages you learn, the more you learn that there are just words that are just perfect in one language that aren't translatable in another. Much in the way in English, we have so many adjectives. So you find yourself wanting words from the other languages, like to kind of complete your sentences in the language you're speaking. It's funny. Another example I shared with Elisa was the ever-evolving language that manifests as slang. Kids are saying bruh, which used to be bro, which used to be brother, which used to be man. <laughs> the other day, my daughter was walking around the house exclaiming bruh, bruh. I was like, what? <laughs> you need a bra? Why are you telling me this? Well, it turns out that kids these days are using bra, much like we used to say dude, which used to be man. And then it's just sometimes the words just don't make sense. Like my son will say something's really sick. And I'm like, is do we like that sick thing or do we not like that sick thing? I'm like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know? exactly. and of course, obviously, in French culture, exactly. have all that same kind of thing. My nephew, who is very hip and speaks extremely fast, had all kinds of slang for us that I was like, wow, OK. You know, so that was a whole learning curve this past summer when we were in France. <laughs> it was funny to hear her mention this since during my interview, Rija, Elisa's daughter, recalled going to French school on Saturdays. As an adult, Rija really appreciated those classes. So it was great to hear that Elisa is providing that opportunity to others. Elisa also performs translation for hire and is a freelance court interpreter. I wasn't surprised to hear that Elisa applied her language skills to her working life. I was surprised, however, to hear that Elisa used her travel experience in another business. Another thing I do on the side, which is completely unrelated, I actually organize and dehoard homes for people who want to put their houses on the market. So that's just like another very different part of my personality. But it comes with some of the things I've learned through my travels, because when you come into someone's home who has had a situation where they've accumulated an inordinate amount of things, usually due to something psychological, you do have to tread the same kind of way that you do 
when you're in a foreign country and you're just trying to kind of figure out things. It's kind of like whenever I travel overseas, I can never figure out public transportation in places. Like sometimes I can figure out how to get myself where I need to go, but I can never figure out how everyone who's from there knows what they're doing and how it all makes sense. Because there won't be a sign and there won't be, let's say, oh, we just know the train's coming or no, it's just going to be the next or it's going to be that stop, even though it doesn't say so. And it's kind of like that when I go into people's homes that have had a situation where they haven't addressed the condition of their dwelling for a considerable amount of time until it's absolutely necessary. I have to kind of like try to pick up on cues that they aren't saying and it's things that I'm seeing, observing. So it's been kind of interesting in that respect. One of the questions I really like to ask everybody on the show is if they could go back in time, what would they tell their younger selves? I would tell her and probably at the age of, let's see, so probably the age of finishing my degree in France or Sorbonne and then and finishing up also in the States, my BA, I would tell her to do the foreign service exam because I've often looked at my trajectory and while it's been really colorful and exciting and interesting and challenging, I really think that it would have been super neat to do the foreign service exam and have had the experience to be in different countries for two or the better part of five years, working in the capacity where you have to know deep culture. The people I've met that have done that exam and have had different appointments in different hardship countries or even comfortable countries have had to have a knowledge of in-country that's pretty deep. And I think that each place I lived, I really always tried to know the local culture and to try to understand it more than just the tip of the iceberg. But in some places, I didn't have as much time. You know, in Guadalupe, I was only there 18 months and I was strapped with screaming kids as their nanny. And then in, in French Guiana, we were there four years and four years was largely enough. It was a hardship condition. And then in France, in Paris, Paris is in France. It's the capital of France, but it's not the entire country. So I could have used a lot more time to go into some other pockets of France that I didn't see except for on vacation fleetingly. I think the foreign people that I've met, they really get in country and learn the language. They have to. It's part of their aptitude that's required. And they have to also know how to negotiate and navigate complicated situations, which is, for me, the ultimate proof that you've actually really understood a deeper culture when you can do that. I could hear the excitement in Elisa's voice, so I asked her if it was too late. Could she go down that path now? Well, it's not just that it's too late. My spouse and life partner doesn't choose that lifestyle. That would be his worst nightmare to switch countries every couple of years. He's very much a homebody. I don't envisage a life of us having long periods of time separated. Earlier in the episode, Elisa talked a little bit about music in French Guyana, and I wanted to give her the opportunity to talk a little bit about French music. Every radio station would always cut the song off before it was even anywhere near finished. So I can remember living in Paris and listening to the radio and hearing great American songs and knowing that I would never make it through to the whole song before the announcer would cut it off. And, and they would constantly cut the song short when they were in English. The good thing about the French culture pop music was the radio stations and the disc jockeys would always let the song play through to the end. So 
So very fast, I learned to prefer listening to pop music that was in French. That time, Le Rita Mitsuku was the name of the group. And they had, they just had these great songs. They had one really famous song that was about an AIDS victim, which sounds really kind of dire and extreme, but it had a great rhythm. And dancing is a really big part of French culture. I really missed when you come to parties and people just stand and drink. When is the music coming on and when can we dance? Then it's really funny to hear the songs that like, cool. oh, what a night. But you hear that in French because it was actually a French song originally. So that was really cool. All the amount of songs that we actually really? stole. Was... So that was Claude Francois. And like Sinatra, uh, I did it my So that way. was originally um, French? That's a French song too. Mm-hmm. It's called Our Old Habits. <laughs> and there, there's just a lot of songs that they borrowed <laughs> from the French. Given the context of the conversation so far, I asked Elisa what else was coming to mind with respect to her experiences of living abroad in different countries, identity, culture, making transitions, etc. I worked in India and I worked in the UK and I've traveled to Indonesia and Colombia and I don't know, just lots of different wonderful places. And I hope I continue to see so many more. And the thing that always resonates with me is how important it is to have a sense of humor and how much things are always going to surprise you. Like you can do as much reading and talking to people and asking questions, but there's just so much stuff that happens in real time that you just don't expect. And I think that's what, I think that's why I'm a travel junkie because I just love that hit of waking up in the morning and you just don't know what the day is going to be like and what new experience is going to come, good or bad. It'll be something fresh and different that'll make you think or you'll be curious about. But definitely, definitely, in every situation, it seems like connecting with people and realizing that there's a lot of communication that can go on even if there's a language barrier. You can get pretty far with nonverbal cues and kindness. And if you have a sense of humor, it just seems like a smile, as corny as it sounds, a smile is universal. But if you're able to laugh at yourself and the mistakes you make, and sometimes just laugh at what people are laughing at, you don't even know why you're funny to them. And, you know, and just be totally comfortable with that and not take that personally. It seems like you can really have a great time globetrotting. And while globetrotting, we sometimes find ourselves in unexpected situations that we later laugh about. I'm just thinking of this incident when I had first come to Paris and my French was subpar for sure. And I had to go to the local grocery store and I had to get tampons. I had my period, so I had to get tampons. And I just had this moment of solitude because I had absolutely no idea where they were, what the box looked and who, like what I was going to call it. So I went up to this, this woman who looked kind of benign and unscary. And I, I just said, I need something. This is this I'm translating into English what I the equivalent of what I said in French. I said I need something. And she kind of just looked at me like, mm-hmm. and I said, I need something for me. And she just was like, uh-huh. Like, 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 who is this? Who is this alien? I was like, I, I need something Go on. for me now for here. And I started just kind of pointing to my vagina. I mean, freak of the week, right? I'm just like pointing to my vagina, going, I need something. And you can imagine, like, that can be so misunderstood. 
And then she looked at me really quizzically, but I could tell she wasn't me. Like I could tell that she was actually, we were kind of having this moment where she was thinking, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. I may actually help this weirdo. And finally, I just said in a really broken French, the time for this woman is now. And she knew exactly what I meant and led me all the way across the store to the tampons, which, by the way, were called Champax. <laughs> and we just had such a laugh because it was just such a roundabout way. And there were just so many incidents, have been so many incidents through my times in travel that things could have gone so many different ways. But as soon as I just like let my guard down, I was just like, I'm just going to do the best I can. And whatever happens, happens. I've always had like really positive outcome and a pretty good laugh at myself. Living abroad and traveling can create a sense of adventure, not knowing what the day will bring. How does one transition back to normal? In Paris, even when I was super dirt poor as a student, and even I didn't really have that much money even when I was a professional, right? But on Sundays, Sundays in Paris, it's just super cool. It's always a cultural day. People go to museums or they go rollerblading along the Seine River. Or they, but Sundays have this certain feel in Paris. Like it's just Sunday. Like people are going to go to a concert or they're going to go to an open air market. But it's just like a Sunday thing. You, you just would never dream of doing any work or fixing anything that's broken in the house. You're just doing something that just feeds your soul on a Sunday. So even here in Pittsburgh, like I really kept that mm-hmm. tradition. Like when it's a Sunday, I'll go to I'll go to a museum or I'll go to an art opening or I'll go to a concert. And lots of times I go by myself because it's not the norm for other people to do that. They're like, oh, my God, I'm hardly getting done. And tomorrow's Monday and the kids are doing whatever. And everyone's so overscheduled all the time. But I, I took that with me. I wanted to always feel that Sunday feeling like in Paris, whether it was watching dance or going to a foreign film or, or making a point of having people over for tea, but just something that reminded me of what that Sunday was like in Paris. And I think it really helps to take those nuggets that you really appreciated from other places and just implement them as incongruous as they, they seem. And even if you're doing it by yourself, because no one else is on your vibe. It's just really important. It just really feeds your soul. And it reminds you. And it makes it feel a little less far away. I found that beyond traveling, wherever I've lived, I've been able to cultivate a subculture where I do have friends of lots of different persuasions and nationalities and who have traveled and stuff too. So you kind of find that, right? You curate that, actually. And you put the energy into that because you know that hospitality, when you're hanging out with other people who have traveled, they have a different sense of hospitality. Hospitality in the U.S. is very lonely to me. It's very quick, very cold, and not as bountiful. So for me, it was always really weird when we moved here, how my kids would get these invites to parties and it would be from 12 to 3, they're going to go to this birthday party because... In, in France and French West Indies, Tiana, and around the Hispanic culture and the Brazilian culture that we frequented, parties just start and you don't give them an end. They end when everyone goes home. What I'm hearing from Elisa is that she has incorporated various aspects of her journeys into her life. I asked, how else might travel or living abroad impact you? I really do think 
that a multicultural, multilingual upbringing does enable an individual to just be so much more open-minded and to not assume things have to be a certain way, to just be more accepting that things are just done differently. There's just a tolerance that comes, I think, when you grow up in a bilingual and multicultural family that you just know that things are different and that that's going to be weird and that person does it like that, but it doesn't even matter. I just really appreciate the open-mindedness that comes with travel. For me, being exposed to different languages and cultures helps me make more connections. When I hear words in different languages and learn what they mean, I pick up on clues on how a particular culture views the world. Don't get me wrong, even as a seasoned traveler, I don't always get it right. Even those experiences can be fun, however. Alyssa shares a story about her husband, Denis, who didn't really quite get it right. Denis ran the Pittsburgh Marathon and he ate the Vaseline that was supposed to be so that he didn't chase. He just thought it was another form of goo or gel or whatever that you're supposed to electrolytes, right? So he, he gets done running this race and he goes, I have this horrible taste in my mouth. And he had sticks of petroleum jelly. <laughs> and he thought, he thought, yeah, I know the food's really gross in America and people do gross things. So I'm just, I'm going to do what they do. I mean, so it's just, but that's what's so oh awesome. God, I mean, so it's just crazy. all that funny stuff that is so weird and unpredictable that just cracks you up. When we're not used to customs or languages, it can be embarrassing, but it's all good. Elisa shares some of her favorite mispronunciations from her husband, Denis. He'll look at you with these sincere eyes. Well, just do the best that you can't. And then my all-time favorites is... Before we proceed, I just wanted to give a verbal warning. Mispronounced words can be misinterpreted. Elisa's about to share one such example. It might sound like a bad word, but it's not. In any case, skip forward about 30 seconds if there are sensitive ears listening. I'll try to stall here and give you some time to get to the control buttons. So here we go in three, two, one, we'll continue. And then my all-time favorites is, you must fuck us. You must fuck us if you want success. And I told you who said that to an entire soccer team, right? Of little kids. <laughs> and more than one. And the parents were staring at them with these big eyes. And I said, concentrate, concentrate. I was doing like the cutoff sign to him. Like, stop talking. Stop talking. And the parents were just like horrified. Like, long O, focus. <laughs> And another example of mispronunciation or misinterpretation that Elisa heard a lot of in Paris is... Miami, Miami. I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, who's friend? Miami. <laughs> Shouldn't it be mon ami? Like, what? Like... And <laughs> having your best at Miami, I'm like, I don't know where to... I don't know. Do I know it? <laughs> Although embarrassing, the mispronunciation of the word focus or eating petroleum jelly meant to prevent chafing are relatively harmless. Some cultural differences, however, can lead to more serious consequences. As I interpret yeah. in the court uh. system, there's also those things that sometimes isn't enough of cultural research and cultural investigation and understanding about why people do things they do sometimes that they're accused of as criminals because they don't really think about where people are coming from. For example, if you take the Haitian culture, it can be extremely superstitious. And one of the things I remember when I would travel from French Guiana to Haiti, which I had to do all the time because that's how you got back to the U.S. You had to go French Guiana, Haiti, French West Indies, and eventually Miami. And so the Haitians would oftentimes drive their cars at night without headlights because they believed that it attracted evil spirits. 
So recently I got called to court and sure enough, it's a Haitian guy who had been driving without his headlights. And I'm like, wow, if I could have only been there when he got the ticket, not only just because of the language barrier, but also, wow, maybe we could have resolved this under, this was something he should have learned coming to the States, but may have never been told. So there's just a lot of cultural misunderstandings that you kind of wish there was more tools. We lived in French Guiana and traveled to Suriname and such. There were State Department warnings all the time that we didn't pay attention to. I mean, because you just wouldn't have ever done anything. You Especially when you were in country, you're like, yeah, it's just not that bad. We'll do this, this, this. And, and it never was anywhere near the degree of the heavy heated warning that they put out. So this opportunity for Nigeria, when I heard this about these, these white women being kidnapped and stuff, and that the State Department strongly advised not to go, I canceled my trip begrudgingly, but sensibly. And it has always been in the back of my mind, like, if I had gone on that trip, I wonder how it would have been, because I would have had the support of the Rotarians who had accepted me on the scholarship. And, and I have never gotten to Nigeria since. I mean, there's a lot of the continent of Africa that I haven't seen. So from time to time, there'll just be this little ghost of the past. It's like, I just wish I'd done it. Oh, and there's a few other destinations like that too, Corsica and a few others that I should have just done it, you know? So then, Lisa, what's what's next? I mean, you've got this like bug that's bitten you back when you were eight years old with an Eiffel Tower dilated perfume, like you mentioned. There's some days when I think I want to do something abroad and service-minded and has like a real purpose and kind of makes a difference. Like maybe a habitat for humanity or teaching abroad or something like that. So to continue to do something of service. And then there's other days when I'm like, oh, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run like an Airbnb and I'm going to do this bilingual tourism thing and my husband's going to fix up the place and we're going to tell people the best things to see and do. And then other days I'm like, I just want to live near a really good airport and just travel a ton and just find out where it takes me. So I'm not really sure what's next, but I hope that it's not as landlocked as the past couple decades have been. One of my biggest criteria is I definitely want to live somewhere where I can get to lots of different countries from there. Now, like Europe is ideal for that because if we leave our house in Pennsylvania and we drive five hours, we're still in Pennsylvania. I mean, there is not a different culture. There's not a different language. There's not a different food. Whereas Paris to Prague, right? Like you can be in a whole nother country in Central Europe with a similar distance, right? So I hope that we live someplace mm-hmm. where we can definitely continue to explore a lot. Yeah. And I hope, you know, that my kids are somewhere near there too, of course. Yeah. Or they're close to an airport. <laughs> As we wrap up here, what else is coming to mind? Really pertinent is just how great it is the way things have worked out in terms of like, the internet and travel and how how now you can get on WhatsApp and be talking with someone on the other side of the world and making plans and the way you can be in the remotest pocket of who knows where, but you can still kind of foresee 
getting the things you need and making things work. I mean, I think the world has really become a lot smaller. And I think that there's just going to continue to be more and more fabulous exchanges and just cross-cultural melting and bonding. And I feel really optimistic about the state of the planet. I mean, not necessarily environmentally, but in terms of just the way we're able to communicate with each other now. It's, I just think it's pretty neat to yes. work remotely. And you can be working with someone in India that you, they're in such an insanely different setting than you with a whole host of obstacles that you may not have and, or even understand. And yet you're working together on a similar project. And I think it's just fantastic, all the collabs and all the, the things we all have in common, but yet at the same time, how much there is to learn from all the different people and cultures. Well, Lisa, I really so appreciate this. Fun. This has been so a lot of fun. fun. It was good to catch I, up. Hearing Elisa's stories of adventure that were prompted by an Eiffel Tower perfume bottle made me reflect on what my spark was. Why do I have this yearning to experience different languages and cultures? I think it may have had something to do with hearing my parents and family talk about their homeland. Maybe that's what prompted Frisia, Elisa's daughter, as a young adult to go back to the place where she was born, French Guyana. You can listen to Frisia's story later in the miniseries. This song is called Masia Baila, performed by Leirita Mitsuko, written by Catherine Ringer and Fred Chichin, source because music. Elisa mentioned it during our conversation, and it takes her back to that time in Paris. I hope you enjoy it. Merci. 